If you're gay, then you're gay. Don't pretend that you're straight. You could be who you are any day of the week. You are unlike the others, so strong and unique. We're all with you. If you're straight, well, that's great. You can help procreate and make gay little babies for the whole human race. Make a world we can live in where the one who you love's not an issue. Thanks for tuning in, and welcome to the August 2nd, 2021 edition of IMRU Radio Magazine, out front and out loud since 1974. Striving each week to amplify the voices of the LGBTQIA2 Spirited Plus communities. I'm Wayne Sampson in Los Angeles. Welcome. Tonight, we get a reading from out MLB vet Billy Bean and sit down with cousin Jerry herself, Jerry Jewell, who also cleaned up the whorehouse on Deadwood as Jewell. We drop in on a cup of outcasts for wisdom on bullying, using the proper pronouns, and a 40-year anniversary in the AIDS pandemic. But first, we get the 411 on Drag Race Drag Queen Pandora Box. From Los Angeles, drag legend Miss Barbecue. I'm Miss Barbecue with Miss Pandora Box from RuPaul's Drag Race Season 2. Anybody that's eaten my cherry pie raves about it. How's the crust? <laughs> Crispy <laughs> and a little tender in the middle. And the fruit? Always ripe. Is it juicy, Pandora? It's overflowing with juices. Would you say your cherry pie was succulent? I would say it's succulent and a bit moist. <laughs> you getting hungry, Kim? I'm getting hungry. <laughs> Welcome, Pandora. Hi. Hey there. Thank you so much for coming in. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited to have you here. You've done so much in different realms. Music, theater, television, of course, from RuPaul's Drag Race. But you've been on a roll where you're taking your drag. I saw you got started in New York. In Rochester, New York. In Rochester, New York at a club called Infinity. I had done drag, I think like a couple months before, at a drag party where everyone was getting in drag or a couple of people were getting in drag and other drag queens were putting them in drag. So I went there, but I was very coy, like, well, maybe, I don't know if I want to do it or not, but I really did. Everybody's gotten in drag for the first time and sometimes it sticks, sometimes it doesn't. What with you made it going, I want to do this? It certainly wasn't the way that I looked because I was fugly. Um, Were you a booger girl? Only because I was dating the drag queen and put me in drag. I was dating her ex-boyfriend and they weren't really exes and I didn't really know that. And he came to the party with me and I was like, oopsie. So she made me look real, real, real ugly. (laughs) (laughs) So I think really what made me want to do it is because I really did want to do it. Like I really wanted to get up on stage. I really wanted to perform. I had done theater like all my life. So that was the drive behind it because it certainly wasn't how I looked the first time. Now, did you always see drag and theater coming together naturally or did you always keep them separate? 
Well, I didn't even know that drag was really a thing that you could do. Like, a, I'm going to say career, but at the beginning, it's like, here's a dollar. Thank you for coming out. Right. So, yeah, no, I guess I did always want to combine them because it is a form of theater, basically. Where do you get your ideas for your theater projects? I wrote a lot when I was a kid, and a lot of times I was too shy to speak, so I wrote it out and wrote things. And when I was in the fifth grade, we had to write letters to our teacher, and we could write whatever we wanted to. And I wrote in the letter, I'm like, what if a student wanted to write a play and put it on for the school? Could that happen? And she said, yes, we could do that. So I wrote a play called The Trouble with Christmas, and we performed it at our school. How old were you then? Whatever you are in fifth grade. Ten? Ten? Ten years old? Yeah. Wow. Were you in your own world? Did you have a bunch of friends? Were you that loner? I think I felt like I was a loner, especially as I got older. We moved in second grade, like halfway through, and the new school was a little tougher. I was getting picked on, and before I never really experienced that, so... I think I felt like I was a loner, but I did have friends, so I wasn't really a loner. It was just, it was a lot of inner turmoil going on in my mind. A lot of but, angsty stuff going well, on. Well, yeah, and just because I think I didn't get myself. I didn't understand that you could be gay. That wasn't on my radar, and I think I was also, like, asexual at a certain point in time. So it's like, I didn't think about it, and we didn't know any gay people, and all I knew is that people were picking on me for this. And it wasn't really on TV a lot. So I watched, like, Carol Burnett and Bette Midler and Lily Tomlin, and I just wanted to be like them. And I didn't realize that I was going to dress up like a woman and kind of be like them, but I just really admired them. And they made me laugh and made me feel all warm and fuzzy inside. (laughs) There are very few times where you're really, really serious in your work. Do you see humor as a way of putting your message across? At this point, even if I try to do it that it's remotely serious, people just think I'm being funny. So (laughs) I can't really, I I can't escape it. Even if I do like just a normal lip sync number and go out there and it's supposed to be serious, eventually within like a minute, it's going to be funny because they're just waiting for it. So I'm like, all right, sometimes you just have to give people what they want. And I think that definitely comedy was a defense mechanism when I was younger I guess I'm just naturally funny. Are you funny at home? Like with your family, with your boyfriend? or <clears throat> My boyfriend would probably say no, because sometimes <laughs> I'm cranky. Because I don't know if you know, but this business can be tough sometimes. No. So, <laughs> this it, bi- yeah, this business, business is tough? this business called show can be tough. So sometimes at home, especially if I've been traveling, I'm tired and grouchy. And so unfortunately, he gets the brunt of it because we live together. Yeah, I'm sure he probably would rather have the show me sometimes, too. What's the best and what's the worst part of drag? I think the best part is just being able to entertain people. And you kind of are the master of your own destiny. Like, you can kind of pick what you want to do. Like, if you're doing a number, you're in total control of it. At the bar, you can do whatever you want, really. And I think the worst part... Oh, there's so many... This is Barbecue with Pandora Box. Since RuPaul's Drag Race has come out and drag has gone into the mainstream, I have seen more of a, I won't say competitive, but a judgment feel from the typical 
person on the street who watches the show. How do you handle that queen that comes over and goes, the shoes would have been better if they were glitter, girl, or you should have had glitter on your eyebrows, or everyone thinks they're an expert now. Yeah. Well, I would be shocked if somebody actually came in person and said anything that they say online to me or any of the queens. Because that's the thing. They don't usually say it in person, and they would never say it in person. But they will go beep, 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 and type it and send it. I don't know what typewriter makes that noise. But, you know, beep, 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 beep. <laughs> I thought that was a that... special typewriter you had. <laughs> yeah, just... <laughs> it makes that noise. I don't know. Okay. Uh, um, they've got that keyboard courage. And I think one of the negative sides of Dry Grace is that in the show, we read each other a lot. And I think people think that they're reading, but they don't know how to read, which reading, for anyone that doesn't know, is the art form of, how would we phrase it? Uh, Caddy observations. Caddy observations. Caddy observations of another person. Yeah. That are generally true close-ish. But funny. Yeah. Like, that's the thing. It's got to have a little snark, a little humor to it. A little bite. Otherwise, it's it's not good. Exactly. And people online don't realize that well i hope some of them are just assholes that's really just what it is they sit there they don't have a life they're not doing anything or they're like a teenager that's why i try not to engage because i'm like oh my god i do not need to be an adult yelling at a teenager it's our social media culture that they feel like they can just be assholes drag race now has that fan base and some of them can get really really nasty and it's like you're going against what RuPaul says and yeah. everything. Like RuPaul has literally said, stop doing this. Like oh, she, she said has. it on the show. She said it at one of the finales. She made a long speech about it. So, Oh, wow. Here's a subject. Drag phobia. That's a term I've coined within the <laughs> LGBT community where the gays love who you are, but they would never date you. Or you're too much like a woman, so therefore they don't want to be around you kind of deal. Right. Have you experienced that before Drag Race, after Drag Race? Oh, yeah. All the time. We always used to say drag queens are like car accidents. Everyone wants to see one. No one wants to get involved with one. Mm. Yeah, because the gay culture, well, our society in general frowns on effeminate men. Mm -hmm. And there's this whole masculinity thing. And that's really what it all stems from because it's just... It's hard being a working woman. <laughs> and I think that, yeah, I mean, I definitely had an issue dating. A lot of times they do just think that you want to be a woman or you are a woman or you're too effeminate. For some drag queens, that's true. And so what? Do you miss when drag was underground? No, because I make more money. <laughs> <laughs> people will be surprised to learn about you. You seem very open in our conversations that we've had. Although people have told me that Pandora Box does come across guarded. We're drag queens and we are gay. So you have to be. And I actually grew up getting picked on every day. That's sometimes why my guard is up because it's still that residual kind of thing. And also being a gay man and living this gay life, you never know what's coming for you. That sounds exhausting. It is exhausting. And actually, maybe this has been a cathartic journey, barbecue. And maybe (laughs) I'm realizing, saying it, that that probably is a big thing that I probably don't need to do as much as I did before. You live and you learn. Mm -hmm. And I think that 
I don't know. I was never really about labels or anything. I feel like it pigeonholes us into certain things. But when I learned about gender fluidity, as soon as I heard that description, I'm like, oh my God, that's me. That's me, yeah. I was like, that's it. Like, that, where was this, like, some years ago? Yeah, it was, <laughs> it was like, non-existent. So labels are good in that fact that it can help you. And it did. I read that and I was like, no, that's just what I am. It's kind of like a weight was lifted off me. That I didn't even know was still there. Because things that happen in your childhood can still affect you later in life. You're like, oh, shit. Really? I'm not over this yet. (laughs) (laughs) Do you feel like you're still coming into your own? I do. Although I feel like that I should have happened already. I think it's this business too that kind of prevents you a little bit because you constantly have to keep going and evolving and changing and it makes it a little harder. Yes, absolutely. Oh my goodness. This has been such a wonderful experience talking to you. This is one of those moments that I've always wanted to dive into with another queen and really dig deep on why we do what we do. And um, I think you are so talented. Please go to PandoraBox.com. There's two X's in box. Thank you. Because X marks the spot. <laughs> this has been Pandora Box with Miss Barbecue. And we will end with a beautiful song by Miss Pandora Box called Different. I'm different. You're different. We're different. One of Miss Barbecue's best films, Leave It on the Floor, can be streamed free on the Tubi app or rented on Vudu, Amazon Prime, and Apple TV. In our next segi, Outcaster, Emily talks about how important it is for people to use the personal pronouns that conform to a person's gender identity. This is Outcasting Overtime from Outcasting Media, producer of Public Radio's LGBTQ youth programs. Hi, I'm Andrew, a youth participant in Outcasting's main studio in Westchester County, New York. On this edition, Outcaster Amelie talks about the importance of pronouns, particularly when referring to a trans person. This is an open letter to anyone who has a trans person in their life, no matter how distant. That means all of you. To start, here's a thought experiment. I'm going to ask a relatively simple question. Take a moment to answer the question in your head and think about your answer, all right? The question is, what is your gender? Here's my response to that. Male, female, doesn't matter. You're not. Feels pretty bad, doesn't it? Probably not too bad, though, considering I'm a stranger on the radio instead of a relative or loved one. But what if I were a relative or loved one? You tell me what gender you are, and I laugh it off and say, no, you're not. How does that feel? Getting validation from others is something most of us need to be happy. If you're straight or cisgender, you probably don't usually think about this in the context of gender, but you've almost certainly experienced invalidation in some other aspect of your life. Gender is a very important aspect of most people's identity. Imagine how bad it must feel to have somebody invalidate it. This is the core of the pronouns issue. Pronouns are words used to refer to and describe people and are inherently gendered. He, him, she, her. So when transgender people transition, their pronouns usually change. 
Someone you've known as he is now she, and that can be confusing. But it's important to respect these new pronouns, as they allow trans and non-binary people to not feel invalidated. When somebody is misgendered, it's hurtful. This isn't just for trans or non-binary people. It would be just as disrespectful to address a cisgender male using female pronouns or vice versa. Most people wouldn't want to misgender a cis person because it would be considered disrespectful. So why not extend this basic human decency to trans people? This is not to say that everyone who has ever misgendered somebody lacks this basic human decency. Misgendering is often a mistake, and that's fine. It's okay to get things wrong, as long as you make an attempt to get it right and not demean or belittle others. Getting pronouns right can sometimes be difficult. When somebody you've known your whole life by a certain name instead of pronouns asks you to use different ones for them, it can be weird and difficult to do, especially when a person's body doesn't match what you might expect for their identified gender. When people make a mistake about pronouns, they often make a big scene in correcting themselves. As a trans person, I'm not a fan of this. Obviously, I can't speak for everyone, but literally all trans people that I have met dislike this kind of experience, and for good reason. It feels alienating and draws unnecessary attention to something that shouldn't even be seen as an issue. If you mess up somebody's pronouns, I would suggest quickly and calmly correcting yourself in the moment, then perhaps privately apologizing later. Mistakes happen, and that's alright, just correct yourself. But there are some people who just can't be bothered to put in the effort to correct themselves. I've experienced this with people, and it's not pleasant. If someone isn't interested in using the tiny amount of mental energy to do something as simple as using correct pronouns, there's probably not much that can be said to convince them. But if this is you, please do consider how bad it feels to be invalidated by others and whether you want those around you to feel the same way. Finally, there are people who intentionally misgender trans people. For some of them, it's a political statement. For others, it is an attempt to antagonize that particular person. But at the end of the day, this is just deliberately causing distress to another person. Even if you do not personally agree with the concept of being transgender, that doesn't justify going out of your way to hurt others. When all is said and done, there's nothing that can be done to force someone to use desired pronouns. And honestly, I think it's for the best that everyone has the freedom to express themselves to others however they like. As a person who identifies in a way that many don't like, it would be hypocritical of me to say otherwise. So this is not an appeal to society to make it illegal to misgender anyone or something, but rather an appeal to those who simply don't understand why pronouns matter. It's just basic human decency to use the correct pronouns. Nobody is forcing anyone to be a decent human being, but that doesn't mean you shouldn't be one. Thanks for listening to Outcasting Overtime, a feature from Outcasting, public radio's LGBTQ youth program. Outcasting Overtime is a production of Media for the Public Good, a nonprofit independent producer based in New York. Our executive producer is Mark Sophus. Visit us at outcastingmedia.org to get information about outcasting, watch outcasting videos, access our social media links, and listen to Outcasting and Outcasting Overtime. Thanks, and thanks for listening. We'll be right back with a reading from Billy Bean after this quick break. Dr. Tom Waddell, creator of The Gay Games, coming up now on The Rainbow Minute. Tom was born in 1937 in New Jersey. As a teenager, he lived with Jean and Hazel Waddell, whose vaudeville acrobat career sparked his interest in gymnastics. They later adopted him, and he assumed their last name. During his years in college and the Army, Tom Waddell became a dedicated track and field athlete, aspiring to competition at the Olympic level. After a sixth-place finish in the decathlon at the 1968 Mexico City Olympics, he traveled across the country to gather support for a gay Olympics. 
1982, after some legal wrangles, the first gay games took place in San Francisco as a sports competition and arts festival. Today, Dr. Tom Waddell's legacy lives on. The gay games attracts a huge number of athletes, making it one of the largest sports events on the globe. The Rainbow Minute is produced by Judd Proctor and Brian Burns and recorded in the studios at WRIR in Richmond, Virginia, and read by volunteers like me, Mary Gay Hutcherson. Hello, I'm Pandora Box, and you are listening to I Am RU Radio Magazine. Welcome back. I'm Wayne Sampson in Los Angeles, and you're listening to IMRU Radio Magazine. The Olympics reminds us of how important it is to have out athletes as role models. Billy Bean is currently MLB's VP, Vice President of Social Responsibility, and is Vice President and Special Assistant to the Commissioner. Ooh, sounds like a fancy title there. Bean was one of the early professional baseball players to come out and went on to write a book, Going the Other Way, Lessons from a Life in and out of Major League Baseball. Don't run like a faggot, boy. I'll never forget the first time I heard the word on an athletic field. Faggot. I remember repeating to myself, faggot. I was in fourth grade, and I was playing quarterback for my junior All-American team, the Wolf Pack. That angry command came from my coach, Jimmy Thompson. It wasn't directed at me. Being the quarterback on the team generally left me above reproach. Instead, it was aimed at Bobby Smith, who had just missed a tackle. Every kid on the field that day got the message, despite what I suspect was our collective ignorance. What exactly was a faggot? How did faggots run? Clearly, it wasn't a good thing. It was probably the worst thing imaginable. It equaled weakness and timidity, everything a budding, insecure jock wanted to avoid. We were only kids. How are we supposed to know the truth? A six-foot-four military veteran, Coach Thompson was a lovable guy who taught me the right way to play the game and helped instill in me a drill sergeant's fire for competition. As former Marines, he and my stepfather, Ed, bonded very quickly. An African-American, Butch Thompson wasn't the kind of guy associated with prejudice. He was married to a white woman, and they were raising a biracial child. Even in our integrated neighborhood, this family provided a positive model. Coach had hardly invented the put-downs, fag, queer, girl, and pussy he threw around from time to time. At the time, in the early 70s, the word faggot wasn't considered bigotry any more than the word nigger had been 30 years earlier. My Latino teammates used the term maricon, so I figured that the insult was universal. By the time I reached the majors, I'd heard the terms from almost every coach I'd played for and many that I hadn't. As a motivational strategy, it was effective. Coaches invoked the terms again and again. Players responded, almost reflexively raising their intensity level, and I could already see how much more Bobby bore down after coach singled him out. Even at that age... Just a ragtag band of skinny boys, we were required to prove our manhood to coaches, teammates, and our dads who roamed the sidelines, keyed up by vicarious intensity. It wasn't long before the kids were berating one another with similar epithets, especially when we did anything out of the norm. Crying or even whining was sure to bring a rebuke. It was common for a kid to cry if he dropped a pass, but we learned quickly that this was a huge mistake. Getting mad was far more acceptable. Copying the coaches, we would go on the attack. Damn, Bobby, hold on to the stupid ball, we were saying to each other before long. You're such a sissy. Nearly 20 years later, those words still haunted me. Jerry Jewell, just love her, is an American actress, stand-up comedian, diversity consultant, and motivational speaker. Noted for roles on the 1980s sitcom The Facts of Life 
and the mid-2000s western Deadwood. She is also the only Facts of Life girl to visit our producer Steve Pride during his most recent hospital stay. But what about Blair and Tootie? Are they too busy? May I help you? I'm looking for Blair Warner. You must be her cousin Jerry. Yes. Well, I'm Mrs. Garrett. How do you do? Uh, she's on the phone. She'll be right back. Would you like to sit down? Thanks anyway, but I sat all the way up here. <laughs> Don't worry, I'm not drunk. I have cerebral palsy. When I'm drunk, I walk perfectly straight. <laughs> My name is Jerry Jewell. I'm an actress, comedian, author. And the name of the book is? I'm Walking As Straight As I Can. I love that title. Thank you. Where are you from? I was born in Buffalo, New York in 1956. That's my first disability. (laughs) 1956 or Buffalo? (laughs) Buffalo. The next question is pretty easy. Just tell me everything you've been doing between 1956 and 2013. Oh, come on. No. No, take me back to your childhood. What kind of childhood did you have? Tell me about your parents and your growing up. I had a very good childhood. I mean, I had a wonderful family. My parents treated me the same as my sisters and brothers, my one sister. But because I was born in 1956, I got trapped in the special ed system. So even though there was really no use for it cognitively, physically I needed physical therapy, I needed an occupational therapy, and I needed speech therapy. And at that day and time... They didn't have those services in the regular public school system. So my academic life suffered, and emotionally I suffered because I was so sheltered from what we consider a normal upbringing in the educational world. I was finally integrated into a regular high school in 1971, And that was a huge victory for me, and I was so excited. And one of the battles I had to fight was they wouldn't let me take a regular girls' PE class. And they put me in an orthopedically handicapped, that's what they called it back then, an orthopedically handicapped PE class, which was a breeze for me. Because most of the uh, students that were in the class were wheelchair users, <laughs> and I was like, what physical exercise is this for me? You skateboarded. You rode bicycles. Yeah, exactly. I was very uh, high achiever physically, even though I had CP. And so then, when that didn't work, they put me in an adaptive PE class, which were all the kids that had emotional problems or behavior problems. And all we did was play bumper pool and listen to the Beatles. (laughs) And I was like, what? Where is the (laughs) P.E.? Speaking of the Beatles, part of the book that I love is your obsession with David Cassidy. (laughs) What was it about David? You even dressed like him a little bit, didn't you? A little bit. (laughs) I intentionally went out and bought clothes that I saw him wear on the Partridge family. It wasn't until later, much later, that I realized that on a very subtle, 
psychological level, it wasn't that I had a huge crush on David Cafferty, but that the perception of myself was in him. In other words, I saw myself as being David Cafferty. I was the only kind of identity that I could resonate with at such a vulnerable age in high school. He had a certain androgyny. Very androgyny. And that I could relate to. I can remember, well, you know, I didn't really see myself as being gay or a lesbian because, number one, I was in special ed all those years and you never ever talk about issues like that. And then being hearing impaired on top of it and not hearing (laughs) half of it once I could. And then being isolated socially, I didn't have the growing stepping stones to grow sexually. So I saw myself as asexual. And I was a tomboy. I can remember when I was even maybe 11 or 12, I resented when my mother put barrettes in my hair or ponytails with a little bow on it. (laughs) And I was like, God, can I just part it on the side and comb it over like my brothers? And I didn't perceive that as a gay thing. I perceived it as being a tomboy. So my sexuality was developed much later in life. And that's what a lot of people had a hard time understanding because sexually, if somebody was attracted to me and giving me signals, they would vibrate over my head. (laughs) And more people took it as rejection and as snobbishness, whereas in reality, I didn't even get it. (laughs) Well, did you have like a eureka moment where you said, oh, wait, maybe I'm... Well, in my third year of college, I took a human sexuality class because I had to. It was required. And I remember the first test we took, and I had read the book. I read the assignment that we were supposed to read, and I couldn't answer any of the questions. I couldn't even talk about sex. So all I did was was put my name at the top of the paper and what class it was and handed in blank. (laughs) And the instructor said, Jay, you don't know any of the answers to the questions? And I said, well, even if I did, I wouldn't tell you. (laughs) I mean, that's how young I was emotionally. And she said, I want to see you in my office later. So I came into the office. And she said, what frightens you so badly about sexuality? Where is the blockage? And I said, well, um, okay, I am not really a woman. (laughs) She's looking at me. Yes, you are. (laughs) I said, no, I'm really not. I'm only a woman from the top half up. And below, I'm a man. And I had never seen a man's genitals or penis ever. I never knew what it looked like. So in my mind, I just felt that I really had a penis and maybe a little one. 
and maybe God changed his mind halfway and made me a, a woman instead with a half penis. But I didn't know what the hell I was talking about because I never saw a penis before. I mean, that's how young I was. And it was shocking to the instructor that I could be 21 years old and be talking like a nine-year-old. So she sent me to a gynecologist to clarify that. And I had never been to one before. And she examined me and she said, guess what, Jerry? You're 100% female woman and you are totally capable of having intercourse. And my mask just fell open. <laughs> I was like, oh, well, really? <laughs> and then I'm thinking, well, it's not going to apply to me anyway because I'm going to be a nun. <laughs> This is a really odd segue. But how did you get into stand-up comedy? Well, I was struggling in college because I was in special ed too long. And I had all these gaps in my education. So I was failing some classes, mainly the math and sciences, English and literature and all that were my natural strong points, obviously, because that's the creative part of me. And I was struggling, and I went to school with a young man named Alex Valdez, who was blind, and we were in the Disabled Student Services Department, and I was complaining to him that I was flunking anatomy and physiology, and I was flunking algebra again, and I didn't know what to do because State Department of Rehabilitation was putting me through school. I mean, I had no money on my own. And he said, well, why don't you do what I do? I said, what do you do? And I told him that I had a dream of being a, an actress and that I had written Carol Burnett when I was a kid. And she told me that when I grew up that she didn't know if I, it was a guarantee that I would be professional, but she said, you won't know unless you try. And that's when Alex said, you know, I go to the comedy store every week and tell blind jokes. And I said, well, Alex, I said, that may work for you, but I see perfectly fine. And he said, no, no, you go to this comedy store and you tell cerebral palsy jokes. So Alex got me into this. I give him credit where credit is due. I blame him when I want to blame him. <laughs> and uh, that's how I got into stand-up. I did not have dreams of being a stand-up comic. I wanted to be a comedic actress and a writer, but that door was open to me, and at that time, that was a huge, huge thing for young people to get on TV. You know, everybody wanted to be the next Robin Williams, and so that was my start. Mm -hmm. And shortly after, I got recognized by Norman Lear, and he cast me on the NBC series Facts of Life. That became huge. What was it like to suddenly go from struggling on stage at open mic night to being on a nationally popular, because it was a big hit, show? It was, and it was bigger than I had even realized it at the time. So when I got Facts of Life and was seen by millions of people, 
it changed my life 180 degrees. And I was getting tons of fan mail every week from people with disabilities, from parents of children with disabilities. And I, I became an icon in spite of myself. It was like I was a little girl struggling, trying to find myself, struggling sexually, trying to find my identity, and here I was, this role model for millions of people. It was a very bittersweet journey, if you will. Well, I know when you were in it, it probably didn't occur to you, but looking back on it with all the other lesbians, (laughs) do you see the whole Joe thing? Meaning? Everyone is saying that was their lesbian role model who was never really a lesbian character. No, and Nancy McKeon is not gay. She never was. And I, I always felt empathy for her because I'm thinking, if I wasn't gay and everybody thought I was, how frustrating that would be. And here I was gay, but I couldn't say anything. But, in all honesty, it was kind of an open secret because I got tons of fan mail from lesbians all across the country sending photos of them, <laughs> and I hadn't even come out. So everybody, I guess they call it a gaydar. <laughs> so whether I came out or not, I was still on the gaydar. Don't go away. We'll be right back with more of Jerry Jewell. The Alvin Ailey Commemorative Stamp, coming up now on the Rainbow Minute. On May 24, 2004, in Newark, New Jersey, the U.S. Postal Service issued an Alvin Ailey 37-cent stamp, one of four honoring 20th century choreographers. The dedication ceremony, also honoring George Balanchine, Agnes DeMille, and Martha Graham, was held at the New Jersey Performing Arts Center's Victoria Theater, where their dance company showcased each choreographer's style. The Alvin Ailey stamp includes a headshot of Ailey to the left, with his dancers pictured performing his most popular and critically acclaimed work, Revelations. He created 79 ballets, often using folk songs, spirituals, and gospel music to celebrate the Southern Black experience in America. Dying from AIDS complications in 1989 at age 58, the dedication honored Ailey posthumously. The Rainbow Minute is produced by Judd Proctor and Brian Burns and recorded at WRIR in Richmond, Virginia and read by volunteers like me, Matt Jewell. Hello, this is the actor Michael Emerson. It's not easy being one of the others, so if time travel or moving the island isn't an option and you're feeling sort of lost, Try listening to IMRU on KPFK 90.7 FM Los Angeles and 98.7 FM Santa Barbara. Welcome back. I'm your host, Wayne Sampson, and you're listening to IMRU Radio Magazine. Now back to Jerry Jewell. In my all-time favorite show, not that I didn't love Facts of Life, but Deadwood for me will always be uh, one of the best shows ever. Deadwood was my magical show. And there's a fascinating story of how you got that part. It is. In 1999, I had spinal cord surgery from C1 to C7, and 
I basically had to learn how to walk all over again with a different kind of a neck. My neck is 45% titanium now. And I honestly thought that my career was over at that point. And I hit rock bottom. I was addicted to painkillers for all the neck pain and back pain. And, you know, I had gone through rehab and I had lost touch with Hollywood. And I was trying to think of a way how I could earn a living, how I could reinvent myself and not have Hollywood be a part of it. But the universe doesn't work that way. And I was standing in line at a pharmacy in 2002, and this man turned around, he recognized me. He said, oh my God, are you Jerry Jewell? And I said, yeah. He said, well, I'm a huge fan of yours. And I said, well, thank you. And he said, you inspired me and you made me laugh. And all the while he's talking to me, I'm thinking in my mind, yeah, that was that life. But I'm glad that I was able to do that for you at that time. And he said, well, do you want a television series? Excuse me, this is a pharmacy. (laughs) He said, in case you don't recognize me, my name is David Milch the producer of NYPD Blue, and he had just signed a contract with HBO. He said, I am doing a new Western for HBO called Deadwood. You want to do a Western? And like I said, I had been out of the loop for so long, I didn't even understand HBO programming. And I thought that it was going to be like gun smoke. (laughs) And I thought I was going to be like Miss Kitty. (laughs) And when I saw the first script of Deadwood, I was like, oh, my God. But it was amazing. It was the most incredible role I've had to this day. And to think I got it in a pharmacy, just like Lana Turner in Schwab's. (laughs) And I didn't even recognize you for the longest time on that show. You were such a unique and different character. It wasn't Cousin Jerry. No, it wasn't anything like me. And it was hard to find the expression of the character as an actress. Her name was Jewel. I know. So you've played both a Jerry and a Jewel. I know. I know. I'm I'm waiting for a producer to cast me in something using my middle name. Which is? Anne. But... Anyway, when I saw the dialogue of her, because I have CP and because of the way I move and talk throughout my life, people have thought that I have not been very bright. And I'm very well-read and very intelligent. And I intentionally speak the best that I can, grammatically correct, (laughs) to let people know I'm intelligent. And here she's saying words that are so wrong. (laughs) And I had a hard time delivering that language. And I remember after about the second episode, David Miltz came by on his electric cart and he goes, Jerry, get on the cart. I want to talk to you. We're going for a ride. And he said, why are you playing Jewel? Like, she's stupid. And I said, because she is stupid. (laughs) She is not stupid. She's very intelligent. She is just not 
formally educated, do you understand that? Her language, or her lack of language, whatever you want to say, has nothing to do with her inability to understand her environment. It has to do with that she's never read a book. But that doesn't mean she's unintelligent, and you better start playing that character differently. (laughs) Yes, sir. Speaking of playing it differently, there was a story in the book that I loved in which there was a miscommunication about the extent of your handicap. I know exactly what you're talking about. After we filmed the pilot, David Milt invited me to have lunch with him. And I was late. I got lost. It was a real bad day. And I was walking really bad. And the meeting was very short. And he didn't remember me having such difficulty walking. And he noticed it, and he said something in the parking lot. He said, why are you dragging that left leg? And I didn't want to tell him (laughs) that the day before I broke my toe, because I have cerebral palsy, I have a titanium neck, I'm hearing impaired, now I'm going to tell him I have a broken toe. (laughs) No way, I'm not going to tell him that. So I played stupid. (laughs) And I said, you mean you just noticed I walked this way? (laughs) I have cerebral palsy. (laughs) Oh. And so when I came back to the set the following week, he wrote it in the script that my left leg was dragging, and he actually wrote a line of Swearingen saying, when are you going to stop dragging that blank, blank leg? <laughs> David wrote it in the script because he was bringing attention to my walk. And after a while, I gingerly brought it up to him that I never told him I broke my toe. He didn't find out until he read the book. But I told him, I said, you know, you know that walk that I do on Deadwood? He said, yeah, well... I had a lot of physical therapy to not walk that way. (laughs) Now you're asking me to walk that way. He said, well, what do you want me to do about it now? Because your character is already established, and you're the one who started walking that way. (laughs) I said, well, why don't we make a brace? And that's when the brace idea came up, and Doc Cochran built me a brace so that I could walk. Not normally. I'll never walk normal. (laughs) But... I'll just walk as straight as I can. (laughs) I came here on my own, Doc. I got something I want to show you. It's a book. Oh, no. I don't read books on the Civil War. Look! I don't need to look. But it'll help me walk better. Okay, you're referring to the brace on his leg. Yes. This has been a conversation with actress and author Jerry Jewell, who came out as a lesbian in 2011 with her inspiring memoir, I'm Walking as Straight as I Can. This is Steve Pride. Thanks for listening. You take the good, you take the bad, you take them both, and there you have the facts of life. The facts of life. There's a time you gotta go and show you grow, and now you know about the facts of life. The facts of life.
Find more information about Jerry Jewell on her website. That's G-E-R-I-J-E-W-E-L-L dot com. On July 1st, we observed a dark anniversary. Forty years ago, on that date, the New York Times published the first mainstream press article about the pandemic, now known as HIV-AIDS. Today, kids learn about it merely as another STI. Outcaster Lil considers what's lost when the homophobic context in which the pandemic unfolded is excluded from students' education. This is Outcasting Overtime from Media for the Public Good, creator of Public Radio's LGBTQ youth programs. Hi. I'm Lil, an Outcasting Youth participant. On Friday, July 3rd, 1981, 40 years ago this month, the New York Times published an article deep inside the paper headlined, Rare Cancer Seen in 41 Homosexuals. It was the first article in the mainstream press about what we now know as HIV-AIDS. There had been some progress in public acceptance for gay people in the 1970s, roughly the dozen years following the Stonewall Uprising. The American Psychiatric Association declassified homosexuality as a mental illness in 1973. Activist groups took hold, working hard to destigmatize gay people and address our community's lack of civil rights protections. But then, young gay men started dying of these weird diseases. It took time for the cause to be found, a virus we now know as HIV, and for people to understand how it was spread. In those early years, most cases in the United States were in gay men, but that wasn't the case in other places in the world, where the disease was often transmitted heterosexually. For a time, the syndrome was actually called GRID, gay-related immunodeficiency disease. It was terrible. For many, a diagnosis was nearly a death sentence. Often, people who worked in hospitals wouldn't even enter the room of an AIDS patient leaving meals outside in the hall to get cold. Funeral homes would refuse to accept the bodies of those who died. In the United States, AIDS was first noticed in gay men, and this led people to vilify them for bringing this deadly new disease into the U.S. AIDS gave people a whole new reason to hate gay people, and a huge new wave of homophobia blasted the country. But the government largely ignored AIDS as it grew from a few dozen cases to hundreds to thousands because it was mainly infecting gay men, and why should the government care about them? President Ronald Reagan, who was notoriously homophobic, didn't publicly even say the word AIDS during those critical early years when the epidemic might have been checked, if only the government had cared about the people who were getting sick. Today, in high school, we learn about HIV-AIDS as just another sexually transmitted infection. We're taught how to avoid it just as we're taught to avoid other STIs. But schools don't teach us about the devastating effects of AIDS on the LGBTQ community. Because for the most part, schools teach little, if anything, about our community. Our education is filtered through a lens of whiteness and straightness, so we don't learn about the terrible context in which HIV-AIDS occurred, especially in the most deadly years of the 1980s and 90s, or about how HIV had, and continues to have, even worse impacts on communities of color. This lack of education about such a critical event in LGBTQ history leaves many young people, LGBTQ and straight, unaware that it happened at all. For those of us who are LGBTQ, it makes it seem that teachers and other adults in our lives don't care that it happened. This brings up a larger issue. In most of the country, LGBTQ history is intentionally erased from public school curricula. 
LGBTQ Nation reports that last month, Nevada became only the sixth state to require that school curricula include history lessons on LGBTQ people and historic events. California was the first to end the exclusion, and several years ago, we talked with the California State Senator, Mark Leno, who sponsored the bill to include LGBTQ history in public schools. You can listen to that program on our website, outcastingmedia.org. Why is it important for all of us, not just LGBTQ students, but all of us, to learn this history? Think about the Black Civil Rights Movement. It's filled with names we've all heard of. Martin Luther King Jr., Rosa Parks, Supreme Court Justice Thurgood Marshall, and too many others to name. When schools teach students about these people and the movement, it makes students, all students, understand that it wasn't just some agitators who thought they had been discriminated against who are trying to get more rights, even though that's how it was often seen. It was an organized movement of strong people who had historically and brutally been denied their civil rights, working to claim their share of the American promise of equality. Black students gain self-respect as they learn about this, but of course, the benefits aren't limited to them. Everyone learns that the black civil rights movement was something to be respected and valued, a movement full of heroes. And although that certainly hasn't eliminated prejudice against Black people, there's no question that it's created a very different and much better reality, not only for Black people, but for everyone. But when LGBTQ history is erased, that public acceptance just doesn't happen for us. Lots of people believe lots of falsehoods about LGBTQ people. That we are predators and sinners and perverts. That we say we're LGBTQ just to be trendy. That we choose to be LGBTQ and that we could easily choose not to be. We experience the same rejections and inequalities that are experienced by all people who are considered others, people outside the straight white mainstream. And yet our minority is different because our differences involve sexuality and gender, which some people in so-called polite society don't like to talk about, especially when those discussions include young people like me. There are lots of heroes in AIDS activism, but we don't learn about them. We don't learn about the terrible stigma around AIDS and how that affected so many people so horribly. We don't learn about the LGBTQ women who became AIDS activists, even though lesbians were at the lowest risk of actually catching the disease. We don't learn how heroically all sorts of people in our community pulled together and worked not only to take care of each other, but also to push the government and medical authorities to work for treatments. This lack of acknowledgement and education about such a critical point in LGBTQ history is dehumanizing for LGBTQ youth. Few young people know about the epidemic and the effect it had on our community. The lack of time, consideration, education, care, and acknowledgement of such a devastating event in our history makes us feel isolated and unrecognized. This lack of context and lack of teaching about LGBTQ history in general hides the fact that just like other discriminated against minorities, LGBTQ people have been fighting for equal rights for decades. Erasing that from our education makes it harder to see our own lives in context, and we need to see ourselves and our community to see that context. And a lot of non-LGBTQ kids, straight, cisgender kids, also don't know about it because it's not taught. They don't see the larger context in which LGBTQ people exist, so there's nothing to lift up their perceptions of the LGBTQ people they actually know, and make them aware of the inequalities we still face. Schools have a responsibility here. 
Students learn best when we feel safe and supported, and making education more inclusive would improve the learning experience of LGBTQ students. But even more importantly, we all need to learn about civil rights struggles. Okay, that's it for tonight. I'm Wayne Sampson. Our thanks to IMRU's executive producer, Steve Pride, the brilliant producer, Steve Pride, and Rainbow Minute producers, Judd Proctor and Brian Burns. Please follow us on Facebook at IMRU Radio. And if you are interested in volunteering with IMRU in any capacity, just email Steve Pride at stevepride.com. That's S-T-E-V-E, Pride, P-R-I-D-E.com. And a reminder, we're a global podcast as well, as a show broadcast by KPFK Los Angeles. You can always hear our weekly show posted to kpfk.org. Also, catch us at iTunes, Spotify, Breaker, Anchor.fm, CastBox, and PocketCast. At the 2008 Summer Olympics in Beijing, only 15 out of over 10,000 competitors identified as LGBTQ. Out of that 15, only two were gay men. One of those gay men was Australian diver Matthew Mitchum, who received the highest single dive score in Olympic history at the 2008 Summer Olympics. Mitchum married his British boyfriend in 2020, but first he made this simple declaration. I got glass on my lips and a man on my hips got me tighter than my dairy on jeans. I'm acting up, got drink in my cup and I could care less what you think. I don't need no permission, did I mention, don't pay him any attention. Cause you had your turn and now you're gonna learn what it really feels like to miss me. Cause if you liked it then you should've put a ring on it. Yeah, if you liked it then you should've put a ring on it. Don't be mad when you see that he wants it. Cause if you liked it then you should've put a ring on it. What the fuck?